Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ask Shane Anything, and that can only mean just one thing. It means that it's Friday! Friday! Hopefully you guys have had a great week, hopefully you guys have a great weekend plan. I actually have one of my sisters coming into town here in a few hours. Uh, she's going to be here for like a week and a half, so it's going to make creating content a little difficult over the next week or so. That's one of the things that's really tough about doing what I'm doing is like... You don't get any paid vacation, and if you don't work, then people get angry. It Again, I've said it before, I don't think human beings are supposed to do this, but it is what it is. Um, so hopefully you guys have had a good week. Hopefully you have a good weekend playing with a bunch of great games. Let's get to the questions. Alright, we're going to kick off this week's episode with a question from someone who has a question in every episode. And as you've probably figured out by now, that is Kevin. There seems to be a trend of games getting a remake or remaster. Why do you think so many games are being remade? Is it just a quick cash grab? What are your thoughts on remakes? Do you like them or would you rather prefer that the developers spend time on making something new instead? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons we're getting so many remasters and remakes. Um, to your kind of hint, I think that's part of it. They are a bit of a cash grab, but more than them being a cash grab, I just think more than anything, they're low risk. Um, if a game is big enough to be considered to be remade or remastered, that means that it did okay before. Now, I'll say this. They're stretching things a little bit at this point, like the Destroy All Humans remakes. Did they really need to do those? I think the sales numbers have bore out that they probably didn't. Uh, so I think you see some of the smaller publishers or like THQ Nordic who has bought up a lot of IP. I think you see some grasping at straws with remakes and remasters in some cases. Even THQ Nordic, if you look at its rundown of IP that is purchased over the last five years, and it's a ton. Honestly, if you're looking for a risk reward, the truth is those games probably were the lowest risk for them based upon what they have available to remake or remaster. So I think risk aversion even with the big guys like Capcom, it's like a Resident Evil 4 remake. That's a no-brainer. It was Game of the Year the year it came out. So generally, Game of the Year candidates, games in that stratosphere, they hold up over a long period of time. That's why they were Game of the Year the year that they came out. So I think a lot of it is risk aversion. And then I think part of it, too, is like it is a little bit of a cash grab because a lot of the work has already been done. Even games that are just completely remade uh, from the ground up, you still have the script there. You still have all the level design. You still have all the weapons. All the heavy lifting is really there. You're just kind of redoing everything and polishing it up. So they can be a cash grab if they're based on really good properties. Now, the other thing I would say too is that you're playing on nostalgia with these. And the truth, the truth is that people like myself and Honestly, most of the people on Sifted who are a little bit older, um, they're advanced in their careers at this point, they have disposable income. They're the ones who have the money to spend on stuff, more so than 18 to 24-year-olds or whatever. So I think they're playing on the nostalgia of our generation of players, the games that we really loved. We're going to be open-minded to give them an, giving them another go and paying for them again, and we have the money to do it. So I think it's just been this kind of combination or crux of all these things coming together. Now, your final question was, what do I think about them personally? Do I like them? Do I enjoy them? I mean, I'll say this. When I first heard about remasters and remakes, I was pretty negative on them. And I think probably that was because in most cases, 
a lot of 3D games at that point weren't that old. But time has moved on now, and some of those games are kind of old. You talk about PlayStation 1 games, I mean, they all really need to be remade at this point. Not even, like, remastered, like, remade, like, rebuilt from the ground up. Uh, because I can't really go back and play PlayStation 1 games anymore. They're just... The technology was so crude and so early at that point, 3D technology, um, that it's really hard to go back and play those. Even the N64, a lot of those games are hard to go back and play today. Um, so I do think games from that era at this point, with all the advancements in 3D graphics, um, it's worthy for them to go back and be remade or remastered, hopefully remade, if you're talking about PlayStation 1 and Nintendo 64. So my opinion on remakes and remasters has evolved over time, and that's healthy. That's the way we're supposed to be. That's how we should live our lives. As we get new information, our opinions change. You don't have to be the same way your entire life. Imagine that. So my opinion on remasters and remakes it's morphed over time as things have changed, as we've had better examples of them. For example, I think Capcom has just knocked all the Resident Evil remakes out of the park. They've all been great, and I played all those games when they originally came out. Let's be honest, Capcom makes them better with the remakes, and I think that's what we should shoot for. That's what we should hope for. Um, I don't think we should be satisfied with, well, they didn't ruin it. Like, that's not good enough. If that's if that's what you're talking about, then it's not worth remaking or remastering something. It should improve on the original experience. Capcom has been really good at that, and it has paid off. And I do not consider that a cash grab. Look at the work that Capcom put into those remakes. It's not just up-resing everything. Like, they've done serious work, looked at every angle of the game, and particularly with Resident Evil 4. Like, to me... That is kind of the shining example on the hill of how remakes should be handled. So I think a lot of people don't want companies messing with their nostalgia. And I think maybe that was a little bit of my reluctance to accept remakes and remasters at first. Um, but as time has gone on, I feel like these publishers have done a great job. And they're reviving games that I would love to play. Like, I have no interest in playing Resident Evil Code Veronica again, as it is. If they were to remake it, then at least I have interest. Now, still to me, it's one of the worst Resident Evil games, but I'm almost intrigued to see how they can improve it and make it better and maybe make it a game that isn't bad anymore. So, um, it's, uh, I think it was a touchy subject at first. I think that has changed over time. Um, res you know, you go, you look at, um, the Final Fantasy VII remake, and I would say this too, I, no matter how good a remake is, I think it's difficult to create interest in something if you didn't like the original all that much. I didn't hate Final Fantasy VII when it came out. I just wasn't a gigantic fan of it. And so the remake comes out, and man, it was just... It's not it's nothing like the original Final Fantasy VII, which might be good for me, since I didn't like the original all that much. But still, a lot of the elements that you have to keep in there to not piss off the fans are the things that I didn't like. So... As usual in life and games and anything else, there are no absolutes. And like I said, when I first started answering this question, like it's okay to change and evolve your opinion over time. Once you say something, you don't have to be locked into it for the rest of your life. I'm sure you can go back and find old episodes of Invisible Walls or whatever where I said something and now I say something different. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So um, if you don't like remasters or remakes, it's totally fine if one day you decide that you do like them. And I do think part of it is age, but most of all, I just think it's publishers being responsible and trying to turn a profit. All right, our next question comes from El Timbo. 
There are persistent debates about the best Zelda games. Every outlet varies in the rankings, and answers vary considerably from person to person. Shane, what are your top three Zelda games and why? Well, if I were most people, this would be very easy. It would be Tears of the Kingdom, and then it would be Breath of the Wild, and then pick one from all the rest. But since I'm not a gigantic fan of Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom, it's a little bit more difficult for me. Um, I would say this. I would say my pick for third could be a number of games. Um, and I would maybe throw Tears of the Kingdom in there. Maybe it's a outside third for me. I mean, like, I'm not denying the, the craftsmanship that went into Tears of the Kingdom. Obviously, it's a very well-made game. It's crazy how big it is and all the things that you can do, and there are, like, no bugs. Like, I respect that. Um, Nintendo's craftsmanship coming through in Tears of the Kingdom without a doubt. So it might be third, probably not, but on the fringe there at least. The other two games I would consider for third, and I cannot decide which one I would give the nod to, and I know that's pathetic. I should be able to. Uh, but the two games are Link's Awakening, and Wind Waker. Um, Link's Awakening, a Game Boy game, literally just, I still can't believe it was a Game Boy game, but what it did was it laid down a lot of the tenets for the Zelda franchise. A lot of things that you do in that game for the first time are things that we're still doing in Zelda to this day. Now, the one thing I will say is I had a much rosier impression, and this goes back to the prior question from Kevin, actually. I had a much rosier remembrance of Link's Awakening before I played the remake. <laughs> I remembered it much more fondly, and then I played the remake, and I got into it, and I enjoyed it, but I had kind of, again, I had kind of put that game up on a pedestal, and maybe it doesn't really deserve to be there now that I've gone back and replayed, but it's, again, it's a remake, and it changed some stuff, so it's hard to say that just because of that remake, maybe it isn't as good as I remembered it being, but what I do remember about it is I was blown away by the breadth of the game for a Game Boy game at the time, and two, just all these new elements, and at the time, you don't realize what stuff is going to stick, what stuff isn't going to stick, and as it turns out, a lot of stuff from that game did stick. Wind Waker, to me, it's not that I think it's the most amazing Zelda game ever, but it was, it's very memorable. You start going back, particularly through some of the 3D Zeldas, they start kind of blending together a little bit. Just because of its tune shading, Wind Waker really stood out, and as I said in a prior episode of Ask Shane Anything, um... It, it was a game that sticks in my mind because of what happened at Space World where we thought we were getting this realistic Zelda and then we go back for Space World 2001 and we get Toon Link and the carpet's kind of yanked out. I will always remember the game just for that because it was such a huge departure. At that point, cell shading wasn't that big of a deal and no one had done anything like the Toon shading in Wind Waker. And also I think you see in that game some of the first sparks of what would eventually come in games like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. You had this wide open ocean that you could travel on. Um, so I think it, kind of like Link's Awakening, it also did a lot of things that showed what Zelda was going to become in the future. So I guess I would say I have three games that are equally in the third slot. Um, it would be Tears of the Kingdom, it would be Link's Awakening, and it would be Wind Waker. Now to my top two. And... I've gone back and forth on these two games throughout the years as far as which one do I think is better. And I'll be honest with you, I think where I come down on these two games is which one do I think laid the template for what Zelda would be in perpetuity the most. Um, and the truth is we don't really get 2D Zeldas all that often anymore. And I doubt that we will now that Nintendo's kind of unified its development because to Nintendo at this point, 
everything's a handheld game and everything's a console game, but back in the day, there was a huge discrepancy between the games that you would get on consoles, which were typically 3D, and the games that you would get on handhelds, which were 2D. Um, so looking at it from that perspective, like which game would ultimately lay down the template for future Zelda games, I guess my second pick would be... Oh, this is this is tough, but I'm going to go with A Link to the Past. And for I'll just be honest with you, for the longest time, A Link to the Past was my number one Zelda game. And even after Ocarina of Time had come out. So by now, you're get, you figured out what my number one pick is anyway. But, but A Link to the Past was my number one for a really long time. But I think what's changed is I've seen, and again, you can change your opinion over time as things change. I think what I've seen over time is that Ocarina of Time is a bigger template for future Zelda games than A Link to the Past was. Because it appears that most future Zelda games are going to be 3D and built with polygons. So to me, it ultimately, Ocarina of Time has ended up being more influential to what future Zelda games will be. Now, Link to the Past, don't get me wrong, to me is the first modern Zelda game that really laid down the template for what Zelda was going to be on a base level, as far as how the dungeons would work, the building on the abilities, um, the building on getting new power-ups, using those in a dungeon, and then getting another one in the next dungeon, and then by the time you're at the end of the game, you're able to use all those tools that the game gives you as an expert. That part of Zelda was established in A Link to the Past. And the other thing, too, is that the story is just amazing. I still think it's probably the best story in any Zelda game ever. And that's a pretty low bar to clear because the stories in Zelda haven't been amazing. They're usually pretty simple. Um, But I do think it has the best story of any Zelda game. And just so many other things. And just, you know, a lot of stuff that plays into it is like where you were at that time of your life when it came out. And I was in a good place then. And like, so I think fondly on the game. So that's my number two. And then as as I've divulged already, my number one is Ocarina of Time. Because it's not, it didn't just lay down how the 3D Zeldas were going to play for a long time. Although Nintendo's now abandoned that for the most part. It also laid down how action games are going to be played in 3D forever. I mean, to me, Ocarina of Time is probably the most influential game of all time. Even more so, maybe, than Super Mario 64. They're close. But I feel like Zelda and the, the elements of Ocarina of Time have been more copied by other developers than Super Mario 64. Because, let's be honest, the 3D platformer genre has kind of disappeared. Most publishers aren't making those games anymore, but they are making lots of action-adventure games and a lot of action RPGs, and all of those owe at least something to Ocarina of Time. And then you talk about, you know, just the... It's crazy to think that they built this back in the 90s, but, you know, the the time-traveling aspects of it, the playing of the instruments, the riding of Epona... All that stuff. There's, there's just so much in that game. And it's still, to this day, a great game. So again, going back to the prior question, we need a remake. A complete remake of Ocarina of Time. And I have a feeling that that's at least in the works at this point. So I respect everyone's opinion on their favorite Zelda games. And feel free to give us your top three down in the comments. I'd love to see what you guys think. But for me, three games tied it for third. A Link to the Past is second. And Ocarina of Time in the first slot. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from Zero Force PT, and I want to thank you personally for pledging at the Ask Shane tier. Are there games that you like the genre but don't like the setting? For instance, I like Skyrim, but I'm not that anxious to play Starfield. Wow, all these questions are kind of tying together here for some reason. I answered the Zelda question, and it related to remasters and remakes, and now I'm asked, asked this question about settings, and again, I'm going right back to the question two, which was the Zelda question, because... 
I'll be honest with you, like, the setting, uh, the open world setting of Hyrule, as you guys know, doesn't appeal to me as much. But I'll say this too, like, settings really don't matter to me. Like, I want to play new settings. I want to play Skyrim in space. And I'll want to play Skyrim in some other setting as well. Because, to me, the setting is kind of frivolous. If a game is well-written and well-voiced and well-produced and there's craftsmanship in the product, then the setting really doesn't bother me all that much. Like, I like being made to feel uncomfortable. And I think maybe that's something that comes as you get a little older. I think, at least for me, through my 30s, like, I almost felt like everything needed to be comfort food or something that I could understand or I could easily digest. As I've gotten older, I've gotten bored by that. And I want things that push the envelope. I want things that that push the envelope inside my mind of what I think is acceptable in gaming. And so to me, keep giving us new settings for the Bethesda games. I'm all about it. Now, I'll say this too. There are some franchises where I haven't liked the new settings, like Final Fantasy, that whole era of Dayglow, Androgyny. Like, it never really stuck with me. I like the dark fantasy, the fantasy version of Final Fantasy more than those games. So it does kind of work on a franchise by franchise basis a little bit at least. Um, But maybe the problem was that I just didn't like those settings for those Final Fantasy games because let's be honest, they were weird. Um, And I'm okay with weird too. So maybe that doesn't add up. But anyway, um, I am really open to all settings. And again, I think as you get older, you play games more, you play games longer, you get tired of the same like Dungeons and Dragons, swords and creature stuff. Like it starts to wear thin a little bit after a while, unless developers can kind of find a new angle on it or the nostalgia play where it's an older franchise that really resonates with me. So for me, I bring, bring it on, man. I've talked all the time about how I really wish that developers would explore current subcultures. Like, I've been through the rave scene. It's a crazy thing to be a part of. Like, I, I again, I always say you guys need to ask me the right questions. You've only ever asked me really one question about that whole section of my life. And I could literally go on for hours about it because it's just, there's nothing else like it. Why isn't there a game that at least touches on that scene? There's There are just dozens and dozens of subcultures like that. I went through the whole punk rock hardcore scene. I've never seen that really explored in a game before. Like skateboarding games, why are they always just about the skating? Why aren't they about what it's like to be a skater? Which is crazy. It's like you're out all day with your bros, you're skating from spot to spot, you're sweating your ass off all day, you're trying to learn tricks. Meanwhile, you're interacting with these people who may hate you, you're interacting with cops who definitely don't like you. There's all these things that are left to be explored inside games. And so I'll be honest with you, Zero Force PT, I hope a lot of people aren't like you in this way. Like, I hope that the publishers are getting polling in data saying that most gamers want to try new settings uh, because I think that pushes the genre forward. Um, And then going back to the first question where, you know, publishers are looking for low-risk stuff, that's why we don't get new settings because publishers and developers are afraid of using new settings because people like you may reject them. So, I mean, I can't believe that you don't want to play Starfield because it's in space. Like, I don't know. That seems crazy to me, but... To each their own, and I respect your opinion anyway. But um, yeah, to me, the more settings, the better. I know that we generally we have to get these in indie games because, again, they're low, lower risk. Um, so I wish I could see like big budget games that explore some of these different settings, some of these really unique settings, and they, they can be learning moments. We all need learning moments in life. You, you settle in, you get comfortable, you're like, I know what I know, and that's all I want to know. I don't think that's a healthy way to live. So 
I just think games could go a lot further in exploring different settings, different times, um, different time periods. Assassin's Creed obviously has been great at kind of taking us back to the past and showing us vividly what it was like to live during those times. I wouldn't mind more than that, more, you know, more franchises doing that than just Assassin's Creed. Um, then, you know, people will accuse them of ripping them off or whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, to me, more settings, the better. Um, I wish that developers and publishers would explore that a lot more. Next up, we have a question from Mike one Neil Druckmann had a significant role in The Last of Us TV show, and with rumors of a God of War TV show and trailers for a Twisted Metal TV show, it made me wonder about David Jaffe. Do you know if he has a role in any of these shows? Do you know what he thinks of them? If he is not part of them, do you know the reasons why? Do you think they will be good TV shows? Are you interested in watching them? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is the first, not it wasn't even a trailer, it was like a clip from the show for the Twisted Metal show was awful. So I am not excited about watching the Twisted Metal TV show. Um, I also feel like we're kind of in a honeymoon period right now because we have like The Last of Us and we have The Witcher season three just launched on Netflix, at least the first part of it. So we have these examples of really good video game related TV shows. And we've also kind of got that with movies as well. The Super Mario Brothers movie was, at least for me, was way better than I expected it to be. The Sonic movies were a little better than I expected them to be. I think they're maybe a little overrated in all honesty. Um, I think that we were in that period then where we were like, as long as it's not embarrassing, then it's good. <laughs> but I don't know. I tried to watch those Sonic movies. I haven't made it all the way through either one of them. So, um, TV, I think games are faring a little bit better on TV. And again, I think the recent success of The Witcher and The Last of Us has played into that a lot. Now, on to David Jaffe. Um, if you follow him on Twitter or you watch, because he's turning kind of like a journalist now. He just like does podcasts and stuff and like streams on Twitch where he just answers questions from fans and just chats or whatever. Um, and by the way, I'm friends with David Jaffe and have been for a really long time. I'll just get that out of the way. Um... But if you watch any of his stuff or if you follow him on Twitter, he hasn't really had anything to do with either one of those properties as far as TV shows are concerned. Um, and he was, I remember, he was a little taken aback by the fact that they hadn't really approached him about the Twisted Metal TV show. And honestly, like when he said that, I'm like, I'm not so sure that you would have made it better. But after watching that first clip of that show, I think he, I think almost anybody could have made it better, you know, and then we got middling stuff like the Halo TV show, which was like, okay, but it got worse, like every episode I, wa I watched, I enjoyed it less and less, um, so I don't think David Jaffe had much to do with the Twisted Metal show at all, I would also venture to guess that he will have very little to do with the God of War uh, TV show, and the other thing I would say is that Jaffe is very outspoken, um, he's not afraid to say what's on his mind. And when you start, when you're like that and you're dealing with corporate America, a lot of times it can be like oil and water. He said some things on his streams that are not very flattering uh, to PlayStation. I mean, let's be honest, he's brutally honest. And I don't think that he's lying or making up these stories. I think he's sharing things that really happen and he's telling the truth. I just think a lot of people at PlayStation would prefer that those stories just stayed, like, in the closet or whatever. And that, But that's not who he is. Like, he's an honest guy. I'm kind of like that, too. Like, I just tell the truth. That's who I am. So I think his personal relationships with the people who might influence those projects, I think, aren't as strong as they once were. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know this for a fact, but I have heard some rumblings from people in the industry that 
his attitude was kind of why he moved on eventually and wasn't working on God of War anymore. So, and again, that's just all hearsay. That could be complete bullcrap, but I have heard it from more than one, one person. So, and he may actually have said that at some point. Like, again, he's very honest. So if that's the truth, he probably has said that himself. So I, you know, Dave is kind of not really developing games anymore. His last couple games weren't really hits at all. And in fact, a lot of people were really disappointed in them. And so he's kind of moved on from that. So he's not really an active developer anymore. He's just he's just kind of on the outskirts of the industry at this point. But he's one of those people who made his money, and he doesn't really need to worry about working again. So um, I don't think he has anything to do with it. I don't think he will have anything to do with it going forward. I think if he got back into game development, those chances might improve. But as it sits right now, I don't see him consulting on pretty much any of that stuff, unfortunately. Okay, our last question for this week's episode comes from Bach B. Obviously, starting your own business is a gamble no matter what it is, and you have talked about how possibly your biggest mistake after leaving game trailers was staying away for as long as you did. This question's so long. I may have to not be able to have it all the way in the, in the graphic. Um, having seen others jumping ship and starting off right away with their own content, your assessment regarding how long it took to get going seems to have some merit to it. Knowing what you know now, are there other things you've learned that you would change if you could start from scratch? Would you have made Sifted at all, or just put all your focus on building up a YouTube channel? Um, okay, so to answer your question, have, are there things that I've seen that's happened since that would change? Yes, I would. <laughs> when I left game trailers, I would have went and started my new thing. I would have went the sympathy route. I would have tried to find some way where I was wronged by somebody or something, and therefore I needed to break out on my own. Um, <laughs> because that's what works. <laughs> if you look at like. Any of the Patreons that have done really well is people who were, like, laid off or fired or something nefarious happened. Like, Giant Bomb was launched on the fact that Jeff Gersman got screwed around by the marketing department at GameSpot. Um, it seems like, and you know, the kind of funny guys, they didn't want to work at IGN anymore, so they broke away and they were the rebels. I think you need stories like that to tell. Because when we first launched our Patreon... And we launched with a pretty good amount. Patreon reached out to us and we're like, hey, new guy, you got a pretty nice amount there. We, we'd like to do some stories around you. And I've, I've mentioned this before. And I was like, okay, that would be great. And so they called me and they talked to me about my story. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've worked in, I've launched two TV shows for major cable networks and I've worked in broadcast and I worked at these huge websites. But now I'm doing my own thing. I'm bringing all my expertise that I learned in a professional setting and I'm bringing it into Patreon. And they did not care. They were like, yawn. They're like, nobody wronged you. You don't have like some compelling story about how this is your redemption. And like, so I think I would have found a different angle maybe to launch things on. Obviously, I would never lie or make up some stuff, but I wouldn't have to, honestly. Um, but the truth of the matter is I was gone for like two years. That is forever in internet time. I think, honestly, that was one of the biggest issues. And there was nothing I could do. Like, we did launch a podcast, like, before the site launched. Like, Marcus and I did Game Phase for, like, two months before the site launched. That should have been plenty of time to promote. But then what happens is we launch the site, and Marcus bails. Like, I don't, I don't want to blame Marcus for stuff, because, you know, he's had a tough go of it here over the last 10 years, and I love him to death. I love him like a brother, but that really hurt, man. Like, we had, like, six or 700 people showing up for our streams, like, the first two weeks that we launched. But to him, he was like, that's it? I'm like, what do you mean that's it? Like... I don't know. I think he thought that it was just going to be instant, like, fame or whatever. Like, 600 people on your first couple streams is a lot. That's great. But as soon as he left and, like, the whole revival of Invisible Walls was, like, over, like, we lost a lot of momentum there. Like, again, I don't want to blame. There's a lot of things that went into it. 
um, that was huge. It just was. Like, we still get comments from people that are like, well, I miss Marcus. Like, it's been like eight years. So that was really bad. Like, there's, and then we got raw. It was just one thing after another. Like, things just never went well. Nothing ever went the way it was supposed to. Now, to your question about, like, would I even launch the website anymore? I mean, one thing I will say is I definitely, I guess the best way I could put it is I did a poor job of figuring out that gamers, what gamers wanted. Like, I I thought gamers were like me, and they hated Twitter and Reddit and places like that because it's all toxic people. You have to search around to find what you really want. Like, I just found myself just, I felt like I was just wasting time on Twitter and Reddit and places like that when I could have some place to go that would just have everything and have a great community and great moderation. What I found is that people don't give a crap about that. <laughs> they don't care about toxic people. They don't care about having a community where they're accepted and everyone's accepted. They didn't care about having a website anymore. They were they had been using Twitter for too long for gaming news to get them to break out of their molds. Like very few people were willing to do it. So um, and then obviously since then, in the last like four or five years, watching all the gaming websites or traffic just go through a free fall, there was really, it was hard to predict something like that back in, you know, when I started launching this thing back in like 2013, 2014, because gaming websites were still going strong then. So, you know, maybe if I could have the ability to see in the future, that is something I would change about how I did things. But really the biggest thing is dedicating enough budget to marketing that was my biggest mistake like there are still there's a billion gamers in the world and literally i'm guessing about one tenth of one percent have ever heard about sifted like i still believe if i had money to market sifted like it could still blow up because it's still flipping awesome i don't care what anyone says it's a kick-ass site with a kick-ass community but people just don't know about it so yeah, there's so many things. I, I think I feel like I've answered this question before on Ashing Anything, in all honesty. So um, there's a bunch of things that could have changed. I think ultimately, if you're going to try to launch a big media property, you need a shit ton of marketing money. Unless you have a story to tell, a sympathy story to tell that people can latch onto and be like, that person got screwed, so I want to support them. Um, and I didn't go that angle. I didn't go that route. I was just like, I want to build something awesome for you that you need. And you may not even realize that you needed it, but you do. Uh, but by that point, everyone, it was almost like muscle memory for everybody. They're like, no, I'm just going to go on Twitter and I'm okay scrolling endlessly for 10 minutes trying to find one thing that I care about. Again, I still think there's a huge market for Sifted. I also, another thing that we should have done, I wish I had money to build an app. I still wish I had money to build an app. I don't. It's like the money that I make barely pays my rent. I don't have any extra money to do anything that can grow Sifted. And it's very, very frustrating. So... Again, I feel like I feel like we've gone through this before, but I think that's the basic gist of what's going on. And again, like here we are. I'm sure when we launched, there was a lot of people that were like, "Ah, that's going to be gone in two years," or ah, "That's not going to last a year," or whatever. Here we are, all these years later, eight years later. So somehow along the way, we've done something right because you guys are dedicated to Sifted, and you guys have supported Sifted from day one, and I appreciate all you guys so much for doing that. Um, so it hasn't been like this complete failure or whatever, but at the same time, it's like, I didn't, I never wanted it to become Reddit either. I didn't want it to become this juggernaut thing that I would lose control of. So with anything in life that you got to take the good with the bad, there's been good with Sifted. There's been bad with Sifted, but ultimately we're still here. All right. That's it for Ask Shane Anything for this week. Again, my sister is in town for the next like 11 days. Um, and so... 
if things go up a little late, a little delayed, cut me a little bit of slack here, I don't get to see my siblings like at all. And this particular sister has never been here. And so I do want to, and I need to show her the town. It's gonna be crazy for me the next week and a half. That's just the way it is. I mean, it always kind of is, it's gonna be worse, but cut me a little bit of slack here over the next week or so. Like, I really wanna show my sister a good time. I've been trying to get her here for forever and she finally came. Um, so things might be a little bit off over the next week or so, but it'll clear up real fast. I want to thank everybody who supports us at the Ask Shane tier or higher. That's at $7 or more per month. Because of you guys, this show happens. I want to thank all our patrons, obviously, because without you guys, none of this happens. But particularly those of you who really like this show and are willing to pledge that extra $3 a month to make sure that it happens. So have a great weekend, guys. We'll see you next week.